Open God's holy word to the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 24. Jeremiah chapter 24, verses 1 through 10. After Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had taken into exile from Jerusalem, Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, together with the officials of Judah, the craftsmen, and the metal workers, and had brought them to Babylon, Yahweh showed me this vision. Behold, two baskets of figs placed before the temple of Yahweh. One basket had very good figs, like first ripe figs, but the other basket had very bad figs, so bad they could not be eaten. And Yahweh said to me, What do you see, Jeremiah? I said, Figs, the good figs, very good, and the bad figs, very bad, so bad that they cannot be eaten. The word of Yahweh came to me, thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, like these good figs, so I will regard as good the exiles from Judah, whom I have sent away from this place to the land of the Chaldeans. I will set my eyes on them for good, and I will bring them back to this land. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not pluck them up. I will give them a heart to know that I am Yahweh. and They shall be my people and I will be their God. For they shall return to me with their whole heart. But thus says Yahweh, like the bad figs that are so bad they cannot be eaten. So I will treat Zedekiah, the king of Judah his officials, the remnant of Jerusalem who remain in this land, and those who dwell in the land of Egypt. I will make them a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth to be a reproach, a byword, a taunt, and a curse in all the places where I shall drive them. And I will send sword, famine, and pestilence upon them until they shall be utterly destroyed from the land that I gave to them and their fathers. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, you are the Lord of salvation and grace. You are the God of judgment. It is with you that we must deal. Father, grant soft hearts. So that we receive the truth of your word this morning. That we would behold your sovereign rule, your freedom to do what you wish as your creation. And that rather, rather than being upset... We would marvel, we would worship, we would express gratitude and thanks that you're merciful on any at all. In Christ's name, amen. G.K. Chesterton once said that a 
truth, uh, paradox is truth standing on its head to gain attention. It's truth that doesn't look like truth. It's standing on its head and it does so to gain attention. And I don't think that technically we have a paradox here, but we do have a topsy-turvy kind of surprise. Things don't play out the way we would expect them. It's a kind of topsy-turvy surprise that's standing on its head, demanding our attention. The Scriptures often present us with paradoxes or these topsy-turvy surprises. Perhaps this is inevitable. One reason being that the Word of God is the Word of the Holy God of Heaven. He is transcendent. He is infinite. He's beyond us. Through Isaiah, he tells his people, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares Yahweh. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So being perplexed, paradoxes, surprises are inevitable in this way. But another reason why I think the Scriptures seem so full of paradox is because God's grace does come as the surprise. His grace is surprising. And today, fallen man doesn't think it that surprising. He presumes on grace the way he presumes on air. It's just supposed to be there for him to breathe. If he's shocked by anything, it's by any word of divine judgment. But if 23 chapters of Jeremiah have taught us anything up to this point, It's that the only thing we should expect is total destruction before a holy God. And what we've seen in Jeremiah is true not only for Judah, it's true for all humanity. It is judgment and nothing else that is to be expected. Grace is the surprise. And it's not only a surprise, but it comes in a surprising way. God reveals that there will be a surprise of grace, and yet whenever it happens and the way it plays out is still a surprise. And we are still waiting yet to be surprised again. God is like that friend that lets you know, I'm going to get you. And then even though you're on your guard, He still does. It's as though He likes to rub His grace in in that way. But that's too playful of a metaphor to capture the whole of what is happening in our text. All will be surprised. The saints by His grace, the wicked by His judgment. The difference is that the saints have grounds for their being surprised, whereas the wicked have none. Part of the shock is that we, along with the world, sometimes think we can predict where the reins of God's grace will fall. Certainly, God will save that person. And yet, we never see any indication that He does. That person is surely doomed for an eternal hell. And then, Saul becomes Paul. Now, we might be more conservative than this world in our forecast. I mean, we don't think it will rain everywhere. Nonetheless, we're still often running the wrong metrics. 
Our models are skewed so that we're left standing in the Sahara with an umbrella expecting rain. We should not be surprised that when we think we can predict God's surprise, we're left surprised that it didn't play out how we anticipated. Because judgment is expected and grace is a free surprise, there's no way we can predict where the rain may fall. None are owed grace and none are beyond it. We can expect rain. That much is promised. We labor and we love in hope of it, but we expect it not because of who we are or because of who they are. We expect it to fall in general because of who God is and who He is is not only gracious, but sovereign and free. And so don't try to nullify the surprise. Let it shock you. In a sense, then, I want you to read this text poorly. I don't want you to read it with a kind of piety where you're not surprised. I don't want you to finish the text and and think, well, that's exactly how I would have expected it to be. I want you to read it really thinking of what you expect and then see what God does. So Jeremiah here gives us a picture. He gives us a picture of the picture that he was given. He gives us this picture and it is time stamped. That's really rare in Jeremiah. And it's not only time stamped, it's time stamped in detail. He receives this after Jeconiah, also known as Jehoiachin, was taken along with others into Babylon, verse 1. Now to back up a little bit, his father Jehoiakim, not Chin, Kim, his father Kim, son Chin. His father Jehoiakim had been put on the throne by Pharaoh Necho. And once the Babylonians had dealt with Egypt, Judah came under Babylonian rule. This was the eighth year of Jehoiakim's reign. For three years, he serves Nebuchadnezzar, and then he rebels, and the city is besieged. Jehoiakim is bound to be taken into Babylon, but we learned in chapter 22 of Jeremiah, he doesn't make it. Somewhere en route, he's discarded, his body dealt with like the carcass of a wild animal thrown away outside of the city. So his son, Jeconiah, or Jehoiachin, reigns then a few short months before Nebuchadnezzar returns to deal with the son because he's like his father. 1 Kings 24, 10 through 17 fills out the scene really well. At that time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up to Jerusalem and the city was besieged. And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to the city while his servants were besieging it. And Jehoiachin, the king of Judah, gave himself up to the king of Babylon. Keep that little detail in your mind for later. He gave himself up. He gave himself and his mother and his servants and his officials and his palace officials. The king of Babylon took him prisoner in the eighth year of his reign, the eighth year of the king of Babylon's reign, and carried off all the treasures of the house of Yahweh and the treasures of the king's house and cut in pieces all the vessels of gold in the temple of Yahweh, which Solomon, king of Israel, had made. As Yahweh had foretold, he carried away all Jerusalem 
and all the officials, all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives, and all the craftsmen and all the smiths. None remained except the poorest people of the land. And he carried away Jehoiachin to Babylon, the king's mother, the, the king's wives, his officials, the chief men of the land, and he took into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon. And the king of Babylon brought captive to Babylon all the men of valor, 7,000, and the craftsmen and the metal workers, 1,000, all of them strong and fit for war. And the king of Babylon made Mataniah, Jehoiachin's uncle, king in his place and changed his name to Zedekiah. So this is what is known as the first deportation. And it results, you see, in a brain drain. All the craftsmen, all the smiths, all the, the leadership, the officials, it results in a leadership vacuum. And this was meant to subdue the people. And Zedekiah is now reigning. He's the last reigning king of Judah, will be. This is already past, this deportation, whenever Jeremiah receives this vision. It's after this, verse 1. And the way in which this vision comes to Jeremiah and the way in which Yahweh deals with Jeremiah concerning this vision is reminiscent of the first two visions Jeremiah receives in this book, chapter 1, verses 11 through 13. The word of Yahweh came to me, saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? And I said, I see an almond branch. Then Yahweh said to me, You have seen well, for I'm watching over my word to perform it. The word of Yahweh came to me a second time, saying, What do you see? And I said, I see a boiling pot facing away from the north. And again, Yahweh gives an explanation of what that boiling pot means. So you see the pattern, vision, question, explanation, repeated here. Jeremiah here sees two basket of, baskets of figs, and they are before Yahweh, they're before the temple. One basket is of good figs, very good, like first ripe figs. The second basket, bad figs, very bad, so bad they cannot be eaten. Now, that they are in baskets that they are presented before the temple, and that the, first, uh, the good figs are said to be uh, like first ripe figs, all of this together suggests the temple of uh, the temple, the feast of the first fruits. All of this suggests the feast of the first fruits. And this was to be an annual expression of joy and gratitude that God had delivered them who were once sojourners and then slaves in a land not their own. He had, he had redeemed them, brought them out of that land into a land flowing with milk and honey. And so each year they brought their first fruits before him in celebration and in gratitude. Deuteronomy 26, 1-4 explains, When you come into the land that Yahweh your God is giving you for an inheritance and have taken possession of it and live in it, you shall take some of the first of all the fruit of the ground which you harvest from your land that Yahweh your God is giving you, and you shall put it in a basket, and you shall go to the place that Yahweh your God will choose to make his name dwell there, and you shall go to the priest who is in office at that time and say to him, I declare today that Yahweh your God, today, uh, to Yahweh your God, that I've come to the land that Yahweh swore to our fathers to give us. Then the priest shall take the basket from your hand and set it down before the altar of Yahweh your God. I found it really humorous that I came across a commentator who was absolutely adamant 
that this could not be the feast of first fruits. And his first reason was that this is a vision. But that's like claiming that in the vision, the temple couldn't be the temple. This can't be the feast of first fruits because there's a real feast of first fruits, is basically what he's saying. Okay, well, then this can't be the temple because there's a real temple. Also, this can't be Yahweh because there's a real Yahweh. This is just a vision. It gets absurd. The second reason, though, was that the bad figs were not an acceptable sacrifice. This is the one that made me laugh. Has he not read the previous? And he's a good commentator otherwise. But the previous 22 chapters, have they left, have they left you in doubt that the people of Israel would, would be doing unacceptable things in the worship of Yahweh? But this gets to uh, the reason for his ire, why he's so upset that someone would, ins- would say that this is the Feast of First Fruits. And that's because he thinks whenever someone says that, they're saying this is a vision of what's actually being done that they were actually bringing these unacceptable sacrifices before Yahweh at the Feast of First Fruits. This is, not a, this is not a vision of what's actually being done at the Feast of First Fruits. This is a vision of the Feast of First Fruits, not to tell them of what is being done, but to tell them of what is, of the condition of the people, of the nation. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. So, but that's the setting set up with this vision. Now, Yahweh's question that follows is to make it plain that Jeremiah sees correctly. So we're told what the vision is, and Yahweh asks, what do you see? And by Jeremiah's response, we see that Jeremiah sees. But we also see that he doesn't see everything. He sees, but he doesn't see. He sees what the vision is, but he doesn't know why the vision is. God is his own interpreter. God doesn't paint abstract art and leave it to us to interpret by looking within, by some kind of mystical communion, by finding meaning within ourselves. If you hear a prophet say he had a vision and then he goes on to offer up the interpretation, know that he's like those false prophets that we examined in the previous chapter that are inventing things out of their own minds and their own evil hearts. Two things follow. The first is to be able to identify these false prophets in that way. The second is that one of the major principles of good Bible reading interpretation is that you understand the vague parts in light of the clear parts. And when you don't understand a vague part, don't try to mystically make something up. Understand the vague parts in light of the clear parts. Know that God is His own interpreter. Scripture interprets Scripture. Scripture is the authoritative commentary. The only one. Scripture is the authoritative commentary on Scripture. Even if we have a hunch because of how the rest of Scripture unfolds for us, even if we have a hunch of how we think this might play out, We can be shown wrong, and I think that's exactly the point here. Realizing this is a vision of what is, not of what is being done, what would you expect the good figs then to represent? Remember, the king of Babylon has taken away the leadership, the officials, those in power. And consider what Jeremiah has said about those in leadership and in power throughout this book. 
how they were corrupt, how they were wicked, how they oppressed the poor. Who does Nebuchadnezzar leave behind in the land? It's the poor. We read in 2 Kings chapter 24. So what would, what, who would you expect the good figs to be? Who, who are the ones that are still in his presence, still in the land? They're the poor. Who would you expect the good figs to be? Who do you expect the bad to be? Well, whenever we come to the explanation in verses 4 through 10, don't misunderstand this. This isn't to say that those that are the good figs are all these corrupt leaders that have been spoken of so much, but it's from among the exiles. It's from those who are exiles that we see those that he regards as good. Those that Yahweh sends away from the promised land are the figs that he says are good. The good fig is the one God throws away, promising he'll bring it back. God has been threatening exile as judgment, and now he's promising salvation to the exiles. What does it mean, though, for God to regard these figs as good? What does it mean that they're good figs? Verses 6 and 7 tell us. And what we see is that it's not their covenant faithfulness to God that makes them good, but it's God's covenant faithfulness to them that makes them good. They are good, not because of what they do. They're good because of what God does to them. He will, verse 6, set his eyes on them for good. In chapter 21 and verse 10, the inverse of this is seen. It was promised to Zedekiah, to those who stayed in the city. I have set my face against. So we see setting the eyes for good. Now setting the face against the city for harm and not for good, declares Yahweh. It shall be given into the hand of the king of Babylon. So the setting of the face or the setting of the eyes communicates intent, resolve, determination. But notice how it's, that's not, that's not the full gist of what you normally expect by this phrase. Notice how it's explained that Yahweh's face was set against the city for harm and not for good. Why, why would that little clarifying phrase be added in there? You, you would expect, I've set my face against the city to communicate he's against it. But then you have this phrase, for harm and not for good. And the reason is because they normally thought of God's face whenever it's directed towards something, as communicating blessing, blessedness. This was the people whose priests were instructed to bless, saying, Yahweh bless you and keep you. Yahweh make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Yahweh lift up the light of His countenance upon you and give you peace. Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 through 26. Right now, God is frowning, but He's promising to smile again upon His people. In His covenant promises to them, He said, Deuteronomy 11, 10 through 12, The land you are entering to take possession of it, it is not like the land of Egypt from which you have come, where you sowed your seed and irrigated it like a garden of vegetables. 
But the land you are going over to possess is a land of hills and valleys which drinks water by the rain from heaven. A land Yahweh your God cares for. The eyes of Yahweh your God are always upon it. From the beginning of the year to the end of the year. You see how God's eyes being upon the land meant its fruitfulness and abundance and blessing. In the same way that his eyes are on his people, it's on this land that he's giving them. And to this land, God is now promising to bring them back, verse 6. In chapter 23, he promised this saying, I will gather the remnant of my flock from all the countries where I've driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. Those that God has taken out of the land, he will bring back in. In chapter 12, Verses 14 through 15, he promised, Behold, I will pluck them up from their land, and I will pluck the house of Judah from among them. And after I have plucked them up, I will again have compassion on them, and I will bring them again, each to his heritage and each to his land. Now this tear down, build up, pluck and plant metaphor you see, it's been used again and again throughout Jeremiah. Immediately before Jeremiah had those two initial visions that we recalled, immediately before that, Yahweh summarizes what Jeremiah's ministry is to be. Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 10 saying, See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow to build and to plant. The surprise then, you see, is that it is those that God has plucked that He promises to plant. And also, He will give them a heart to know that He is Yahweh. The covenant name that He gave His people. To know that He is Yahweh. They will be His people. He will be their God. Verse 7. So you see with this that God's covenant faithfulness to His people is His new covenant faithfulness. His covenant faithfulness promised here is His new covenant faithfulness. And this is as old as the old covenant itself. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, Yahweh speaks of Israel's falling away and His bringing them back to Him. Should they be unfaithful, He will restore them. And He says, Yahweh your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Jeremiah speaks of this being fulfilled as the new covenant in chapter 31, verse 33 through 34. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares Yahweh. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know Yahweh, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares Yahweh. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. He then goes on to speak of this covenant as an everlasting covenant. Chapter 32, verses 39 and following. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever. 
for their own good and for the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant and I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. This is the cup of the new covenant of which we drink. We partake of this promise. If there's any doubt, Hebrews 8 and 9 makes that very clear. Picks up these passages. Tells us that they are the covenant that Christ mediates for us. Hebrews 9.15 He, Christ, is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. You see how that recalls what we're seeing in Jeremiah? The promised eternal inheritance. The land. So that they might receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. This is the covenant. What's being promised here is the covenant you partake of. So recognize this. God makes the good figs good. The new covenant that Christ mediates is so that those who are called might receive the promised inheritance since a death occurs that has redeemed them. God makes the good figs good by the redeeming shed blood of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. God does not do good because the figs are good. The figs are good because God does good. Israel needed new Hearts, as Jeremiah has demonstrated, because the heart of man left to itself is desperately sick and deceitful. Chapter 20, 17, verse 9. Repeatedly, Jeremiah has spoken of the heart of Judah, as, uh, spoken of them as stubbornly following after their own heart. Jeremiah 3.17 says, At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of Yahweh, and all nations shall gather to it to the presence of Yahweh in Jerusalem, and they shall no more stubbornly follow their own evil heart. Why will they no longer stubbornly follow their own evil heart? Because he's told them he will give them a new heart that fears and loves him. The reason that the nations, the reason that we gather before a throne of grace, the throne of God, to worship, no longer stubbornly following after our own hearts, is because God has given us a new one. Ephesians 2, 1 through 8 puts it this way. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead and trespasses made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. 
so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. And we were raised a new creation, new hearts in the resurrection of Christ. So whenever the sheep are separated from the goats, know that the sheep didn't distinguish themselves. It was the shepherd's redeeming love and voice that made them what they are. They were goats. They did not make themselves sheep. Whenever God picks the harvest from this earth, there are only rotten figs. And he picks some figs with the hand of his judgment. And that is all to be expected. But praise God. He picks some with the hand of mercy and grace. And sovereignly and freely makes them good. That's the surprise. And then the surprise on top of the surprise is that he does so by first throwing them out of the land. What of those that remain bad figs? Verses 8 through 10. Those left in the covenant land of promise, we're told, are out of the covenant and without promise. And the reason is that remaining is rebellion. Now remember that little detail we recalled, uh, we, we, I told you to keep in mind whenever, uh, concerning Jehoiachin, that little detail that he gave himself up to the king of Babylon, his mother, all the officials, he gave himself up. And then we read later in 2 Kings, the, the end of 2 Kings ends with this, this glimmer of hope that the line of David is not extinguished and the promise of God will endure. And the glimmer of hope is that this Jehoiachin who gave himself up is freed from prison to dine regularly at the king's table. In contrast to that, remember that threat we read of earlier where Yahweh's face is set against the city. That was spoken concerning Zedekiah and those officials who remain behind, and it's preceded by these words. Thus says Yahweh, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. He who stays in this city shall die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. But he who goes out and surrenders to the Chaldeans... So even among these, that, these bad figs being spoken of, there are some bad figs that will be taken into Babylon just like the other good figs that are being spoken of here. They, they can be in that lot. They have this choice before them. Let me pick back up. He who stays in the city shall die by sword and by famine and by pestilence, but he who goes out and surrenders to the Chaldeans who are besieging you shall live and shall have his life as a prize of war. For I have set my face against this city for harm and not for good, declares Yahweh. So God tells them, go out, and I will bring you back in. Stay, and I will drive you out. Remaining is rebellion. So whenever you initially think, it's all the wicked leaders that are taken out, 
and it's all the oppressed that are left behind. Erase that picture now, because the picture is of one of those who gave themselves up, those who, as it were, received Yahweh's discipline of the Chaldeans, and those who rebelled against it. Any attempt to stay in the covenant land is rebellion against the covenant Lord who said, I'm driving you out. Remaining is rebellion. God has brought the Chaldeans against them. Submission to God means then submission to the Chaldeans. The judgment to come on them for this rebellion is that they will be made a whore, a reproach, a byword, a taunt, a curse in all the places they are driven. So the good figs are going to be gathered from the nations to be blessed and the bad figs are going to be driven out to the nations as a curse. To get a sense of what it means to be a whore, a curse, consider the end of Zedekiah. 2 Kings 25, the Chaldeans capture him. They bring him before Nebuchadnezzar at Riblah. And we're told, 2 Kings 25, 7, they slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains and took him to Babylon. Do you see the reproach, the byword, the curse? Or Jeremiah chapter 19 Speaking of how the valley of the son of Hinnom, where they worshipped Molech and sacrificing children. It says that that valley where they've committed such gross sin will be known as now the valley of the slaughter because of the judgment God will bring on them. Explaining, in this place I will make void the plans of Judah and Jerusalem. What kind of plans? Plans to stay. Plans to resist. I will cause their people to fall by the sword before their enemies and by the hand of those who seek their life. I will give their dead bodies for food to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the earth. And I will make this city a horror, a thing to be hissed at. Everyone who passes by it will be horrified and will hiss because of all its wounds. I will make them eat the flesh of their sons and their daughters. And everyone shall eat the flesh of his neighbor in the siege and in the distress with which their enemies and those who seek their life afflict them. What it means for them to be a whore, you see, is not simply to suffer at the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. What it means for them to be made a whore is that Yahweh comes against them. Verse 10, I will send sword, famine, and pestilence upon them until they shall be utterly destroyed from the land that I gave to them and their fathers. So now we've considered both sides of this vision. You should be surprised. But the question is, Is it a pleasant surprise? Or is it one that leaves you upset? Is yours a surprise of humble gratitude? Or shocked ire? You must know that if you are shocked, God isn't shocked by your shock. He anticipates it. 
Romans 9, 19 through 20. You will say to me then, why does he find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? To be delighted by the surprise of God's grace, one must not only taste of it, they must drink deeply of it. Drinking deeply means that you realize in the surprise of God's sovereign and free grace, He remains above us and not below us. That's to say He remains righteous and just in His sovereign freedom and not unjust. This is not this kind of surprise where we come off looking like the innocent victim of some cruel prank. In this surprise, God remains faithful, not unreliable. In this, God remains immutable, not erratic. It is He who is righteous and holy. We are the sinners. God does nothing out of character in this. And that's... That's what's so amazing is he does nothing out of character, and yet we're surprised. The surprise is not that he judges many, but that he has grace on any. R.C. Sproul captured the surprise masterfully, the holiness of it. The saved get mercy. And the unsaved get justice. Nobody gets injustice. Mercy is not justice, but neither is it injustice. There is justice and there is non-justice. Non-justice includes everything outside the category of justice. In the category of non-justice, we find two concepts. Injustice and mercy. Mercy is a good form of non-justice, while injustice is a bad form of non-justice. In the plan of salvation, God does nothing bad. He never commits injustice. Some people get justice, which is what they deserve, while other people get mercy. Again, the fact that one gets mercy does not demand that the other get it as well. God reserves the right of executive clemency. Whenever our president pardons one and not another, no one objects that he did any injustice in that in and of itself. He has that executive clemency. Sproul goes on, as a human being, I might prefer that God give His mercy to everyone equally, but I may not demand it. If God is not pleased to dispense His saving mercy to all men, then I must submit to His holy and righteous decision. God is never, never, never obligated to be merciful to sinners. That is the point we must stress if we are to grasp the full measure of God's grace. The real question is why God is inclined to be merciful to anyone. Why does He do so? These are mysteries we cannot probe the depths of. Hence, 
part of the surprise. But this much he has made plain, that he does so for his glory. Romans 9. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Why? To make known both his power and judgment and the riches of his glory and mercy. This is the reason why his grace falls so surprisingly. And in light of Jeremiah's words, we should hear the Apostle Paul's words to the Corinthians freshly. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things are not, that to bring to nothing Things that are. So consider, God chose those who surrendered, not those who stayed in strength. He chose those who bowed to his discipline, not those who withstood it in might. He, he chose that which is low and despised, the exiles in the world, even things that are not. And why did he do all this? To bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. Not because of yourselves. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. Who became to us wisdom from God righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Saints, whatever your situation, whatever your lot, however low, however enduring the suffering, rejoice, because it's all a temporal shadow. And in Christ, you are forever and truly blessed. And sinner, it matters not how many temporal blessings you might enjoy. They are no sign or indication that you are secure in God as a refuge. If you are going to be surprised by God's grace at all, it must begin by admitting that you, in and of yourself, can expect nothing but judgment and an eternal hell from His hand. 
And if you can admit that you are a sinner and worthy of nothing more than that, well, if you can do that much, then perhaps I think it very likely His grace is surprising you and leading you to repent of your sins and believe on the Christ who died to redeem sinners. And so, if there's any, any grace present with you in this moment to recognize I am a bad fig and worthy of nothing more than the judgment spoken of here. Hear the good news of Christ. You don't have to be a good fig for God to be good to you. But there is a holy and sovereign God who freely is good and gives His Son. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your rich, extravagant, surprising, undeserved, unmerited, free grace in Christ Jesus. We are unworthy servants. Even after Your redeeming grace, when we do something of Your will by Your grace, we only can say we're unworthy servants. And yet You will heap grace upon top of Your grace for those who are Your own. Not because we're good, but because you are. So all praise, glory, and honor be to you. And Father, we would cry out. We long to see your reign fall in barren places, knowing it is not beyond you, but rather that you've promised it. And we want to see a harvest, your harvest, your gracious harvest. We want to see your hand work and making souls new, and come to faith in Christ. So give us boldness to go forward, sharing the good news of Christ, knowing that it is that gospel that you use as your power to make hearts new. In the strong name of Jesus, we ask this. Amen.